0: By show of hands, who's heard the expression, famous last words? Yeah. Yeah. It's an expression that is often used to express lack of faith in something. And the expression goes something like this. Someone told me that 2022 was going to be the greatest year ever. Famous last words. Or they said that we'd get $1 million if the Detroit Lions went to the Super Bowl last year. Famous last words. But if we take that expression more seriously and less sarcastically, someone's famous last words can be one of the most memorable parts of their lives. So after a brief Google search, here are the famous last words, the last recorded words anyway, of eight famous people in history. Here we go. Ludwig Beethoven said, friends applaud. The comedy is over. The poet Emily Dickinson said, I must go in. The fog is rising. Winston Churchill said, I'm bored With it all. Leonardo da Vinci said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Karl Marx said, Go on, get out. Last words are for fools who have not yet said enough. Harriet Tubman said, Swing low, sweet chariot. Judas Iscariot said, I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. Jesus Christ said, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Last words can be both memorable and powerful, can't they? And they can make a deep impression on the heart and mind of the hearer or reader of them. So what are Paul's last words to the church? The church of Ephesus and the church of Edgewood here, EBC. Paul is not on his deathbed here, but what are his last words to the church in this letter? What does he want to leave in the heart and mind of his readers? Well, today, we're going to be finishing Concluding the letter to the Ephesians. And our summer series will be coming to a close today. In our passage this morning, we're going to dive into Paul's last words to the church, to the Ephesians and to Washingtonians from this letter. But before we look at those last words, let's briefly catch up on where Paul has been in the letter so far to give us the the bigger context of what's been going on in the letter, if this is your first time joining us this morning, or if you've slept since last Sunday, which is me. As we have seen this summer, Ephesians is a letter about the wisdom and mystery and glory of Christ revealed to the people of Christ, the church. The letter of the Ephesians, to the Ephesians, is about the wisdom, mystery, and glory of Christ revealed to through the people of Christ, the church. That is the overarching theme that is over and under every word of the letter. And in chapters 1 through 3, the Spirit has told us, through the hand of Paul, who the church is. While in chapters 4 through 6, he is told how the church ought to live in Christ together. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has covered the full scope of glorious doctrine of our salvation, as well as the faithful, practical devotion of the Christian life. And drilling down a bit further into the context of the whole letter, we have learned four things about the church, the people of God, in this letter. First, we have learned again who the church is. We read in chapter 1 that the church is made up of those who are sovereignly saved and sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Second, Paul has told us how the church has been saved and made one new humanity. We read in chapter 2 that the church is made up of Christians globally and locally that are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And no matter their ethnicity, whether Jew or Gentile, Israel or non-Israel, culture, gender, socioeconomic status, age, stage, or gifting, the church is one people one citizenship, one dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Third, Paul has told us what the church reveals. We read in chapter 3 that the church reveals the mystery and beauty of the gospel and that all Christians have now been made co-heirs and partakers of all of the covenants and promises of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected for all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ alone. And the church ultimately reveals the manifold wisdom of God before heaven and earth. Isn't that amazing? The church reveals the wisdom of God before heaven and earth. Fourth, Paul has told us how the church ought to live together. We read and We read in chapters 4 through 6 up to our passage this morning that the church is to live and walk in a new and worthy and humble and gentle and loving and mature and pure manner in Christ, in our homes, in our workplaces, and in our gatherings. And we are to be fully armored in Christ with the word of God in hand and prayer continuously on our lips. Paul has told us these things about the church thus far. Hasn't this letter been incredible? This letter is incredible. And now we arrive at the close. Paul's concluding words to the church of Ephesus. And so if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter six. If you do not have a Bible with you, you can find a Bible under a chair near you. If you do not own a Bible, please feel free to take one from under the chair near you. You can find Ephesians on page 917 in that pew Bible, in that share Bible. We're going to be walking through the last four verses, and you'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage this morning. Please follow along as I read Ephesians 6:21 through 24. This is the best part of the sermon this morning right here. With love incorruptible. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into these four verses. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us from heaven through your living and active word. Lord, we ask that we would not just be informed by your word but that we would be transformed by it and your spirit. And Lord, I ask that you would strengthen your imperfect and weak servant now to proclaim your word faithfully. Lord, we ask that hearts would be changed, that minds would be renewed, and that we would be more unified by the reading and blessing of your word today. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, to guide our time this morning, here's the big idea. Here's something for you to write down in your notes. It should be up here on the screen in just a moment. Here it is. Be encouraged and may the peace, love, and grace of Christ be with you all. Be encouraged and may the peace, love, and grace of Christ be with you all. This is the summary of what Paul is saying here in these final verses. And unpacking this, our outline for this morning breaks down into two parts. We see a messenger of encouragement in the first two verses, 21 through 22. And then we see a final message of grace in verses 23 through 24. A messenger and a message. Okay, let's go. Point one, a messenger of encouragement. Verses 21 through 22. Let's read those once again. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. And that he may encourage your hearts. Well, imagine with me for a moment a pre-modern world. A pre-modern world. A world without phone calls. Without texting. Without email, without that archaic thing called AOL, instant messenger, without social media. In our modern world, it's kind of hard to imagine, right? It's hard to imagine. But this was the Ephesian world at the time this letter was written. And primary communication came by word of mouth or letter. And it seems plain as day, but there was not a mail service in Ephesus. They didn't have a U.S. Postal Service or a UPS or FedEx. They didn't have any of that. Letters had to be written by hand and then delivered by hand, right? Written by hand and delivered by hand. And we know that Paul, at the time this letter was written, was in Roman prison. And so, someone had to assist him in the writing and delivering of this letter. And so we arrive at verse 21, here at the conclusion of the letter, and we find that assistance came through a man, a man named Tychicus. And when I say that name, I'm reminded why it's not a popular biblical boy name today. It's not like James or John or Joseph. Tychicus is the name of this guy. This man is mentioned five times in the New Testament. And from these five, we learn several things about him. Here are a handful of facts, some things that we learn about Tychicus from God's word. In Acts, we find that he is one of Paul's traveling companions. In the letter to the Colossians, we read about how he is a fellow servant in Christ alongside Paul. The pastor R. Kent Hughes brings to light that he was with Paul, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, on frequent journeys... Danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. In 2 Timothy, we find out that he was the designated sent one to Ephesus. And now here in our passage... In Ephesians chapter 6, we find that he is a beloved brother to Paul and a faithful minister in the Lord. This is one of Paul's partners in the gospel. This is one of Paul's mutual disciples and friends. And he is a faithful minister in the Lord alongside Paul. And when we read, in the Lord... What it it means is he is in Christ. He is one of his along with Paul. And he is a sheep of his pasture. Tychicus and Paul were brothers with Christ in common. And there are several things that we can learn and apply from the relationship between Paul and Tychicus. Though it's briefly set forth here, there are several things that we can learn about their relationship. Relationship and life together, particular particularly in regard to partnership, discipleship, and friendship. Three of my favorite ships: partnership, discipleship, and friendship. First, there is partnership, and I wonder how you think and feel about partnership this morning. Paul and Titus shared deep, like-minded. Partnership. And partnership requires brotherhood and sisterhood that includes mutual striving toward a common goal. So, like the brotherhood and ministry partnership between Tychicus and Paul, applying their relationship and principle of their relationship to our own lives, speaking specifically to the elders here in this room, I am thankful to be partnered with linked arms in the gospel with you. I'm thankful. But speaking to the whole church, let's consider how you partner with others in home and in work and in the church. Are you a ministry partner? I just want to ask you, are you a ministry partner in the life of EBC? Are you striving toward the common goal of loving God and loving others here in this church? Are you capable of partnership, of working with a team for the common goal and for the good of building up the body of Christ in like-minded ministry? Are you humbly decreasing, if you are serving, humbly decreasing, setting aside your own preferences and opinions so that Christ might increase and that the church might be built up. How are you faithfully partnering with others in the church to engage in partnership like we see here between Paul and Tychicus? It starts with covenanting with the church and membership. And then it looks like diving into a ministry, being, being music ministry, children's ministry, men's or women's ministry, and soul partnering with others in it. For the common good of the brothers and sisters here at EBC to the glory of Christ. Paul and Tychicus are a picture of godly partnership. Second, we see here that there's also a model of discipleship in play here. Discipleship in Christ is the lifeblood of the church, discipleship is the bread and butter of what we do together. It is, it's the, it's the rudiments of faith. And here's a succinct definition of what discipleship is. Discipleship is simply walking with Christ and then helping others walk with him in the local church. Discipleship is walking with Christ and helping others walk with him in the context, in the life of the local church. Paul and his relationship with Tychicus is a model and a picture of mutual discipleship. Discipleship is looked many in many ways in my own life it's happened in small group ministry it's happened through one-on-one lunches with guys for mutual encouragement to discuss things as simple and as great as finances marriages relationships parenting all the above discipleship has been an integral part of my marriage i've received marriage counseling in the past and marriage counseling at its root is a form of discipleship in the church That's what it is, a form of discipleship. It's also looked like getting together under God's word like we are today. We are being discipled and discipling one another as we gather together, as we sing together, and as we pray together, even now. Discipleship comes in many, many forms. We do the work of mutual discipleship, as I said, now, as we gather As the church, we do the work of mutual discipleship in care group ministries here in the church. We do the work of mutual discipleship in our men's and women's ministries. We do the work of mutual discipleship when we gather for a meal with another family and ask that other couple, that other single person in our midst, how are you doing physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? And then take them to the word of God in encouragement. Then it happens, discipleship happens when you open the word with your children and with your wife in family worship. Extending to them the word. You are the chief discipler of your household. Are you taking that seriously? The work of discipleship happens when we are in a children's ministry class together and There's a teacher discipling children in the Word, and often in principle, children disciple the teacher. (laughs) You learn a lot from one another. The work of mutual discipleship happens when we get together with someone one-on-one to open the Word or with a small group of two or three other guys to talk about theology, men or women, getting together with a small group, just talking about the Word, theology, life and encouraging one another, doing spiritual good to one another with our words and not assuming that it's happening somewhere else in the church. We need to, are to actively do this. So who are you walking with? Who is your Paul? Who is your Tychicus? Who are you encouraging today in word and prayer and time? Consider the ways that you engage in discipleship. Here at EBC. A third, there's friendship. So we see. Paul and Tychicus are a picture of godly friendship. Friendship is a good gift from God, isn't it? It's a good gift from God. The church father, Augustine, said this about friendship. I love this quote. Particularly when I am worn out by the upsets of the world, I cast myself without reservation on the love of those who are especially close to me. I know I can safely entrust my thoughts and considerations to those who are aflame with Christian love and have become faithful friends to me, for I am entrusting them not to another human, but to God in whom they dwell and by whom they are who they are. Paul and Tychicus are a picture of godly friendship, similar to others that we see in Scripture, like Abraham and Lot, David and Jonathan, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are all examples of friendship that go deeper than mere mutual hobby. Though hobbies are well and good to share in common with other Christians in the life of the church. But these relationships, these friendships go deeper because they're marked by mutual friendship faith. Do you have friends like this? Do you have friends like this? Consider your friendships and consider how you engage others as a friend. Well, Paul and Tychicus are a model of partnership and discipleship and friendship. Three separate but often related things. And brothers and sisters, if you structure your life around Christ, your life will be inevitably structured around the body of Christ, the church. And you will partner, you will disciple, and you will befriend others in the church with the Lord's help for your good to the glory of Christ. May we together seek godly partnership, godly discipleship, and godly friendship amongst one another here at EBC. Well, look with me at verse 22. I'm going to read it once again. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. We read here that Tychicus was Paul's Paul Revere. Sent to Ephesus to do three things. Let the church know how he's doing. We don't know all the details, but we do know he's in prison. Let the church know what he's doing, writing, ministering, partnering, discipling, and befriending others in Christ. And he's writing and sent to Ephesus to encourage hearts In the church. Don't you love that language? Encouraging hearts in the church. Tychicus was ultimately a messenger of encouragement. That's what he was. And what was the content of that encouragement? This whole letter. From the first sentence of Ephesians all the way to the last, Paul knew that true encouragement could only come from the Spirit and Word. And Paul knew that the church needed encouragement, to be encouraged, to know the Christ of their salvation, to learn Christ, as it says in chapter four, verse 20, and to know who they are in Christ. For the past three chapters of the letter, Paul has encouraged the church to walk in a worthy manner, hasn't he? He's encouraged the church to put off the old self with its darkness and devastation and destruction, to put on the new self with the righteousness and holiness of Christ himself. He's encouraged the church to walk in unity and to grow in maturity, to walk and to know that every wall of hostility has been destroyed in the gospel of Christ in the life of the church. Paul has encouraged the church to remember that they are to walk in newness of life and to walk and imitate Jesus in light, love, and spirit-filled life in the church, in our homes, and in our gatherings, in our workplaces as well. And all of this encouragement to the church in Ephesus is the same encouragement to the church here in Edgewood. All of this encouragement to the church of Ephesus is also to those here at EBC, here as we've gathered together, because there's nothing new under the sun. Biblical encouragement is the same yesterday as it is today. And yesterday's problems are also the problems of today, just with a new face. And as we saw in the previous section, in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, last week, the world, the flesh, And the devil are constantly attacking us. As a church, we are in a spiritual war. Church, I know this. I see it and feel it in my own life. I see it and know it in yours. And we are in this together. A band of ragtag brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so we need to encourage one another with the truth of God's word. We need to encourage one another to remember that those armored in Christ are also armored in his righteousness and truth and peace and faith and salvation. We need to encourage one another with the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Is there anything more encouraging than the gospel? No, there's not. Where else can we receive true and lasting encouragement but from this book and in the gospel that it teaches? Where else can we receive the help that we need moment by moment, day by day? We need encouragement, and we need to be encouraging others. So I have a question have you considered that encouragement is a spiritual discipline? We, we should think of encouragement in the life of the church like we think about eating, breathing, drinking, walking. It should just be a part of us. It should just be a part of us. In the conclusion of this letter, in this verse here, we find true encouragement. In this book, we find true encouragement. So may we continue to encourage one another with it. Paul knows as well as I do that there's lots of discouragement and there's pain and suffering in this life. Lots of discouragement, pain, and suffering. And so we need to receive encouragement and give encouragement and to be reminded of the peace and the love and the grace of Christ that is with us through the Spirit. And that's where Paul goes next in the final two verses. Look, look there with me. This brings us to point two, a message of grace. Verses 23 through 24. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Think with me for a moment about your favorite song. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end, right? And in a song, there's a melodic note that connects often the beginning of the song to the middle and then to the end. There's a melodic note that connects the beginning and the end, and it's the same in a letter. It's the same in a letter. So what is the melodic note What's the word, the melodic word that connects the beginning and the end of Paul's letter to the church? Well, look with me at chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. I'm going to read those verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look back with me at our verses today. Verses 23 and 24, we see peace and grace. Grace particularly starting there, commencing the last line of the letter in verse 24. Do you see that grace connection? The whole letter is a grace sandwich. Grace is the alpha and the omega of the letter. Grace makes up the bookends of the letter. And in these final two verses, grace is the focal point that connects the themes of peace and love in the church. This is not accident. This is not an accident. This is intentional. And similar to how Paul pulled all the themes from the letter together in that previous section, in that armor, that famous armor of God section, spiritual warfare section, in verses 10 through 20, here, Paul is restating, reaffirming, re-rehearsing, rehighlighting two streams that lead into the ocean of God's grace, two streams that lead into it and out of it. Paul desires to leave us with the peace, love, and grace of Christ in our hearts and minds. So let's look at those two streams that flow into the ocean of grace and out of the ocean of grace in the life of the church, and let's see how they're connected to the earlier parts of the letter. First, there is the stream of peace. Peace weaves through the letter and flows out and in of grace to the church. Paul says there, verse 23, peace be to the brothers and sisters should be included as well. That word in the Greek is adelphoi. Includes both genders, brothers and sisters. Peace comes over and over again in this letter. Over and over again. In chapter one, as we just read a moment ago, Paul starts the letter with grace and peace, right? from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And our natural disposition is often to not be peaceful. So we need to be reminded that we need to receive peace. We need to receive the gift of peace from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, we read that Christ has knocked down all the walls of hostility amongst the people of God. That he has made peace between Jew and Gentile in his cross and resurrection. Furthermore, in, th- in that chapter, we are told that Christ is our peace. He is our reconciliation. In chapter 4, we read that we are to walk together in a worthy manner, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the what? Bond of peace. Peace. According to God, peace and unity go together in the life of the church, and it's that bond of peace that is created by the Spirit, is sustained by the Spirit, and maintained by the church, those indwelled by the Spirit. And that bond and stream of peace that we've seen in the letter leads into and out of an ocean of ever-present grace in Christ here in the life of the church. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called, what? Children of God. A sure sign that you are indeed a child of God is if you are present and walking in peace and unity with God and with others in the church. Brothers and sisters, we are to strive for peace, peace in our homes and peace in the church. So how does peace characterize your life? Does it characterize your life? Does it characterize our life together? May the peace of Christ be with and fill us all. Second, we see there the stream of love. Love weaves throughout this letter. It's mentioned 14 times, seven of which Seven of those times in regard to loving one another. And this love is intimately connected to the grace of God. As we found out in chapter one, that in the love of God, in love, God predestined his people for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, In chapter 2, we discovered that Christians were once the walking dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace we are saved. And here in these concluding verses, I want us to notice that love is mentioned three times. It's a trifecta of grace, of, of love here. Love is mentioned three times. There is love with faith. Active love and active faith go together in the church. There's the love for Jesus, and that love is incorruptible. Paul's picking up on the words of Jesus here. Jesus said, by their love, they will be known. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus also said that we are to love God and love others. That is the greatest commandment. And as I mentioned in a sermon earlier, a message earlier in the series, but it bears repeating, EBC, we can be the most theologically literate people. We could be the most doctrinally sound and correct men and women in all of the region. We can be pro-life, pro-biblical marriage, pro-biblical family, pro-insert evangelical cause here. We could even be pro-homeschooling. But if we have not love for Christ vertically and love for one another horizontally, as a local church here in the Pacific Northwest, then we have nothing. We have nothing. We have nothing if we do not have a Christ-centered, biblical, truth-filled love for one another. There's a reason why Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because the author of Revelation picks picks this back up. And what does he tell the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2? You have forgotten your first love. It's so easy to misplace and cease love in the life of the church. It is possible for a church to lose its love and wither away. So may that not be us. Paul is calling here yet again to a higher love, a greater love, a bigger love, a love that is grounded in truth and displayed in the gospel of Jesus. He is calling us to practice a love that is patient and kind, a love that does not envy or boast, a love that is not arrogant or rude, a love that does not insist on its own way, a love that is not irritable or resentful, a love that does not... Rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Paul is calling us to a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He is calling us to a love that never ends, a love for Christ and his church that is incorruptible. In a world of corruptible love, incorruptible love is an evidence of pure grace it is supernatural it is spirit given and it's truly beyond our comprehension and yet it can truly be known in Christ and it can be shown in Christ by the people of Christ the church by his grace so now pulling it all together in these verses, we have read of the peace of God, we have read it, I read of the love of God, and we've read of the culminating grace of God, in which peace and love flow in and out of. But how has that peace been accomplished? We've just touched on it. How has that love and grace been displayed? Paul wants us to read these verses in context of the whole letter. And at the center of the letter, what do we find? Jesus and his gospel. Jesus and his gospel. Jesus embodies the peace, love, and grace of Christ, of God. And in his gospel work, we see peace made, love shown, and grace displayed. In the gospel, we see peace made. Love shown and grace displayed. We don't have a category for true peace, true love, or true grace without the truth of the gospel. And so, here is the gospel. In the beginning, God created all things, and those things were good. He created man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he called them very good. But the first human beings, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. They rebelled against him. They denied the good and gracious authority of God over their lives and sin entered the world. And it's not just Adam and Eve who sinned. Scripture says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, not just physical death, Not just physical death, but also spiritual death. And those who die in sin, spiritually, go to a place called hell. We will all one day die. Death has a 100% success rate. But God, but God in grace so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. On the cross, Christ took the punishment that we deserved for our rebellion against God. All those ways that we lack peace and love and grace... He died as a substitute in our place. And therefore, our biggest problem is not sickness or anxiety or addiction or fear or political upheaval or some governmental party. That is not our biggest issue. The biggest issue is our sin. That's, that's our biggest problem. And our biggest problem requires a big solution. And Christ alone is that solution because he died as a substitute in your place and mine for all who repent and believe. And then three days later, he got up from the dead, securing salvation for those who are his. Isn't that incredible? And Christ has ascended and he reigns in heaven in glory now, presently, and we await his final bodily return. There is only one response, friends, to this good news, one response, and that is repentance, turning away from those things that that you do in rebellion against God, turning away from sin, all those ways that you lack peace, love, and grace, and turning toward Christ in faith. That is the only way that one can be saved. That is the only... Way that someone can know peace and love and grace. So, friends, we aren't saved because we grew up in a Christian family. We aren't saved because of a childhood decision that we have renounced and don't follow any longer. We are not saved because of the good things we have done. We're not saved because I'm a basically good person. We are only saved by grace alone, through Christ alone to the glory of God alone. That is the salvation presented in this letter. That is the salvation that's presented in this entire book. If you have questions about this, questions about this gospel, anything that's been said this morning, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love to talk with you. Another elder or pastor would love to talk with you. Another Christian in your row would love nothing more than to talk to you about the peace and love and grace of Christ. Don't leave this place. Don't leave this place without talking with someone about the gospel and Jesus if you are not following him today. But Christian, if you are living a life of ongoing faith, if you are living a life of ongoing repentance by grace, then here's a message for you. Be encouraged and may the peace, love, and grace of Christ be with you. That's Paul's final word to you. That's Paul's final word to us. Be encouraged and may the peace, love, and grace of Christ be with us all. We should close. At the beginning of our series in this letter, I asked a question. And that question was this. Who am I? I encourage you to ask the same question. Who am I? I, as we walked through the letter, we found that every Christian, every Christian in this room who believes upon Christ is blessed, chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, united, righteous, holy, saved and sealed in Christ. Every Christian in this room can say that. And every Christian in this room can say, because of who I am in Christ, by grace I can walk in a worthy manner in new life by word and spirit. But here at the close of the letter, I want to end with a slightly different question. Who are we? Who are we? Brothers and sisters, if you are a member here at EBC, who are we? We are the church. We are the church, a fellowship of sufferers and sinners made saints by the blood of Jesus. We are the church, the people of God who bear all those marks that we just mentioned. We are the church, a ragtag band of brothers and sisters, armored in Christ, walking through the swamp of this life. We are the church, with the Lord's help, a living and breathing community of God's peace and love and grace. We are, by the pure grace of Christ, the church, the manifold wisdom of God on display before heaven and earth. And this is all by grace. All of it. Brothers and sisters, we are the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the word made flesh. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you for your work of redemption that you have accomplished for sinners like us. In spirit, we praise you that you have applied that salvation in making the old new. We give you thanks and we praise you as our good father, good son, and good spirit. All to the praise of your Glorious name. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.